We are in Revelation chapter 20. If you're just joining us, which a lot of you are, we've been studying through end times and we've been talking about a lot of different topics. We've talked about the rapture. We've talked about the Bema Seat. We've talked about the tribulation period. We've talked about the return of Jesus Christ. What we're talking about in this sequence is just give you that, that idea of the chronology is the rapture's next thing in, ch- in church history. Then Antichrist will sign a seven-year treaty which begins that 70th week of Daniel. That begins a series of judgments that God sends down from heaven. The first set is the sealed judgments. That'll last for the first three and a half years. At the middle of the tribulation, Satan is cast out of heaven. He comes to the earth in wrath, and now he is going to work because he knows his time is short. And so he's very active. This is when Antichrist exceeds himself, ascends himself to become the god of the world. That's when they incorporate the 666, all those things. And he is, after a series of battles that we talked about from uh, multiple scriptures, he is going to be the last man standing. And so in the second three and a half years, that is where he's going to have his worldwide rule. Now God will respond with two sets of judgments. The trumpet judgments and the vial, V-I-A-O, or bowl judgments. They will take place in that second half. Then at the second half, towards concluding, you're going to have the battle of Armageddon. You're going to have the destruction of Babylon, uh, Antichrist headquarters. You'll have the two false prophets that will be engaged preaching. The 144,000 will start all the way at the beginning of the seven years. But then at the very end, it's come to a point where man would destroy himself. The world would be totally annihilated except for Jesus Christ returns at this moment so as to, and we, we talked about, rescue the world from destruction, also to rescue the Jewish people and multiple other reasons. Then the next thing that happens after that is there is a 75-day period where, according to Daniel chapter 12, the last few verses, there's a gap of 75 days where Jesus Christ is going to get the world ready, and he does a series of events that take place in that 75 days, and then he begins what's called the Millennial Kingdom. The Millennial Kingdom is described in multiple passages, but let's pick up in Revelation 20 just to set our scene where it says in verse 1, it says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a season. I saw thrones, they that sat upon them. The judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Christ and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their forehead or in their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ (coughs) a thousand years. Excuse me. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. For this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, and on such the second death hath no power, but that they shall become priests unto God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Several times that phrase, a thousand years, we have no reason to think it's analogous. We have no reason to think that it's symbolic. It is a thousand-year kingdom. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. He shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle as the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about the beloved city Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's set up our our setting here. 
we know a little bit about the kingdom. Now, some of you with us last week, I'm going to change the order of how I presented some of this and rehearse a little bit and then build on from it. But for the sake of everybody here, let's just set our scene. We're talking about a thousand-year kingdom during this time that is an actual time period. Satan and evil will be removed. That is, those external temptations. We understand that if Satan's removed, probably his hordes are removed with him. And so the temptations, the trials that people who live in that thousand years are greatly, greatly decreased. We understand that at this time, Jesus Christ will personally and physically live upon and rule planet Earth. He's coming again. He will rule. And he is going to dominate the world during this time period, which will be an exciting moment. It will be far different and better as far as the government and the environment. And we'll talk about the difference in a few moments. It's going to be very similar back to the Edenic time. The time in the Garden of Eden, if you would. And so it's going to be this perfect environment. There's a cup, some questions that we need to answer before we describe the thing, uh, the, the period. But I want to answer this question and build on what I suggested last week. We might need to answer who's going to be in the kingdom. We know this from Scripture. We know that we who are born again, have been raptured, we will be there. Because First Thessalonians chapter 4 says that once we're raptured, we are ever with the Lord. So that means we're part of this kingdom. Okay, we're going to be uh, some of the citizens of the physical kingdom. According to Daniel 12, it talks about the resurrection of the Old Testament saints who will be a part of the kingdom. So the Abrahams, the Moses, the Davids, the uh, different characters that we've been studying of late, Elijah and Elisha, all of them will at this moment going into the kingdom, that's when they receive the resurrection bodies and uh, they will be into the kingdom with, with raptured or resurrection bodies like we will be after having come back from the dead. And that, I believe, is one of the events that takes place during that 75-day gap that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 12 between the second coming and then the beginning of the kingdom. There is another group of people who will be there. We just read about the tribulation saints who were killed for the cause of Christ. They will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation, part of that 75-day activity. They will be resurrected, given glorified bodies. They will go into the kingdom with glorified bodies like the Old Testament saints and like us. There is also... The mention in Matthew chapter 25 that there is called a sheep-goat judgment. We looked at this at length last week, and so I'm running through some of the material. You can look up the passage later. But it says in Matthew 25 that the sheep, those who are on the right hand of Christ, are invited to come into the kingdom prepared for you. And so these are the people who are alive at the end of the tribulation, that uh, part of that crowd that has seen Jesus Christ come down from heaven, they've survived the trib, and they call upon him as their Savior. Those who are born again, those who are the sheep, they will go into the kingdom at that time, as well as us, the Old Testament saints, and the tribulation saints that have been martyred. There is no mention of them getting a glorified, raptured, resurrected body. Okay, there's that. So our understanding is they go into the kingdom with a regular body like we have at this moment. Okay, by, by process of elimination, we go and we say, okay, there's another group of people who are alive when he returns. Zechariah talks about one-third of the Jewish people will survive and call upon Jesus to be their Messiah as they see him returning from heaven and rescuing them from utter destruction. And so we have the Jewish people who are born again at the end of the tribulation. They will go into the, re into the kingdom as well. No indication they get a resurrection body as well. So we have, at the beginning of the kingdom, we have it being populated by Old Testament saints, 
New Testament or church age saints, tribulation saints who have died, tribulation saints who survived the tribulation physically, Jewish saints who have truly been born again who survived physically the uh, tribulation period. So everyone when we start this kingdom is going to be born again which makes sense. John chapter 3, Jesus said, except you be born again, you shall not see the kingdom. And then he says, you shall not enter the kingdom. And so in that text, talking about being born again, that's exactly what happens. Everybody at the beginning of the kingdom is saved. However, we have indication in multiple passages in the Old Testament that there's going to be new people born during the kingdom age. There's passages that talk about this. This is, a this is a kingdom passage in context because Jerusalem is going to be called the throne of the Lord. That's going to happen in the kingdom. And all nations gather to Jerusalem. That's kingdom. That's not now. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land... Okay, so there's, there's multiplication of the Jewish people in that period called the kingdom age. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for the calamity. This is a kingdom passage talking about bearing children. Another kingdom passage that talks about being fruitful and multiply is when God has brought the Jews together into the kingdom age out of all the countries. Kingdom passage, mention about bearing children and multiplying. Kingdom passage, this is the passage in Ezekiel 40 through 47, talks about the, the millennial temple and the worship. And he concludes it with this phrase that talks about, you shall allot the land as an inheritance for yourselves and for the outsiders, the non-Jews who reside among you, who have children among you. And so it's another kingdom passage that is talking about birthing and population expansion. We go on and it talks about in Zechariah the same thing. That the Jewish people will all of a sudden, remember they only went in with one third of a remnant. But now he's talking about them populating and expanding their numbers greatly. And so he's giving these promises to, pe to the Jewish people and making mention that there's going to be birthing taking place amongst them. And our question has to come back when we do that is, okay, then this would help us to understand a lot of passages that are confusing about the kingdom. As people think this, the kingdom is a perfect environment. There is no, nothing wrong there. There is no problems. There's no difficulty. In a sense, that is true. But there are some passages that indicate it is not heaven yet. It is not eternity where everything and everyone is perfected. Let me show you what I mean by that. That at the end of the tribulation, the passage we read, I'm sorry, the end of the millennium, the passage we read in Revelation 20 talks about a number of people rebelling against Jesus Christ at the end. That Satan is loosed after the thousand years and he gets, as the passage says, as many as the sands of the sea who follow him and rebel. Who are those people? Where did they come from? Are they you and me? who with glorified bodies, we revert to a point where we rebel against Jesus Christ. Our sin nature has been eradicated. With a glorified body, we don't have that anymore. It's not the Old Testament saints. It's not the New Testament saints. They've been glorified. What about the tribulation saints who died? They've been glorified. They don't have that sin nature anymore because it's been eradicated with a glorified body. So who is it that is possibly going to rebel? Is it people who have been saved and then all of a sudden they lose their salvation? That contradicts Scripture as well. 
So the conclusion has to be there's going to be people born during the time of the millennium, which those other passages indicated that some of those people born during the millennium will at the end of the time be some of those who rebel against Christ. They will be birthed with a sin nature. They will still have to be born again. And a number of them, they will not accept Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, though they obey his rules, though they obey his commands. They will choose to go against Christ at the end when Satan is released. That explains where those people come from who are the rebels. It also helps us to understand passages like Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 talks about that during the kingdom, there are people of different ages. That's because people are entering in all with glorified bodies. We might all be the same age. We're not sure how that all works. But it's talking about all of a sudden in the kingdom, you have children and you have people that are 100 years old. And some of them are are dying. Well, who's dying? It's not you and me. We have glorified bodies. It's not the Old Testament saints. We have glorified bodies. It's not the tribulation saints who are martyred. They have glorified bodies. Okay, so is it the people who went in with their regular bodies that they're birthing individuals? And those individuals are part of those who rebel, those who at a certain time their bodies will expire, that they will die. And so we go on and we say, okay, that makes sense now. This, this passage with understanding babies are born, families are, and population is multiplying, according to those previous texts we saw, this explains why there could be some people who will all of a sudden get to an elderly age and they will die. There's that possibility of death to some people who have regular bodies in the kingdom. And so those people born during this time, they could, be, they could expire. It also explains several passages in the Old Testament talk about there's going to be justice. There's going to be penalties meted out during the, during the millennium. Well, why do we need to be punished? We don't struggle with sin. Why does the Old Testament saints who are resurrected? They don't struggle with sin. What about the tribulation saints who are resurrected? They're, again, sin nature is gone. We don't need punishment. We don't need discipline. That's going to be taken care of. But people who are born during this time, they will need to learn. And we read of passages where God says, this is going to be the time period where those, the fathers, who have who eaten sour grapes, the idea is that they're going to suffer their own punishment. No more generation after generation visited like the seventh generation. That's done. In the kingdom, if somebody does wrong, those who are born during this time, and some of them might rebel before the end, if they do wrong, God's going to do justice and judgment to those individuals who do that. There's even talking about how David and those who rule with him will execute justice, okay, in the sense that they will, they will govern right, but they are going to execute, they are going to carry out some types of punishment at times to those who disobey the rules and the laws and the regulations of the kingdom. Zechariah chapter 5 pictures that scroll that's on the screen. It pictures a scroll that is flying during the kingdom age. This scroll is 30 feet by 15 feet, the size of the inner chamber of the Old Testament tabernacle. And this scroll has the Word of God written on both sides, just like the Ten Commandments were written on both sides, according to Exodus. And this scroll will hover around and go through all the earth, it says, and cover the entire earth at that time, wherever somebody is making a false oath or somebody has committed the sin of stealing. Those two are specified as the two commands or the two violations, according to Zechariah 5. And so somebody in that kingdom, maybe small numbers, 
Sure, you know, few in numbers might do this over the thousand years, but if they do that, if they make a false oath or use the Lord's name in vain, if during that kingdom period these individuals who are born with the sin nature, living in the kingdom, that all of a sudden they succumb to stealing, there's going to be immediate punishment. The scroll is going to come and it's going to execute some type of judgment. How does that happen if everybody in there is perfect? If everybody is glorified, because not everybody is perfect or glorified, there, as the passage has said, people are being birthed during the thousand years. Those individuals are being born with a sin nature. They don't have the same temptations that you and I have that are all around us, but they still have that inner sin nature that's going to have to be... Um, Jesus Christ will basically suppress through his justice system. This also explains passages like this that talk about shepherds and teachers who are instructing some people, even some people who go astray at times, who all of a sudden they're walking the wrong way, and we who, have, who are there will encourage them to get back into walking the right way. Well, who is that possibly walking the wrong way? Not people with glorified bodies, not people who have been resurrected, the church saints, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints. It's those children of those who have gone in with physical bodies and will be birthing during this time, and those generations that are being birthed, they will hear the truth, they will be taught the truth, some will not accept it internally. They will accept it outwardly, and if they get out of line, they're going to be dealt with. And if they get out of line, we're going to encourage them to get back into the right way. But they have to make a personal decision to be born again. And some of them will not, and as a result, they will rebel at the very end against Jesus Christ. Now, who's who's producing all these children? Well, there's no definitive statement in Scripture. We know that there's population expansion. That's stated. We know that not everybody has their sin nature eradicated. That's stated by multiple passages. We know not everybody has glorified bodies because there is some death during the kingdom. That is stated in Scripture. Somebody is birthing these kids. Well, if we go by the process of elimination, we go by Matthew, the words of Jesus, that he says that once we get resurrection bodies, we are like the angels. We don't marry. We don't give in marriage. In other words, we're not going to be involved with procreation. It's not us having babies. So we'll just, let's take that that idea of, of you ladies being eternally pregnant, birthing babies. Let's take that and put that aside and say that's done with. Okay, the Mormons can have it, but that's not biblical. Okay. The biblical thing is that we're not going to be the ones reproducing. Neither will it be the Old Testament saints, neither will it be the tribulation saints who have their have regulation bodies, uh, resurrection bodies. However, okay, we eliminate those. There are people who have survived physically the tribulation who are born again. The sheep goat judgment, these are the sheep. They enter into the millennium. No indication they've been resurrected. No passage talks about their glorification. So by process of elimination, we conclude, wait a minute, it's probably them. That they're the ones that are going to have babies. And the Jewish people, the remnant, that one-third, that physically saw Christ return, called upon him as Savior, they also go into the millennium no mention of them having been given a resurrection body. So they go into the, into the millennium with bodies. They are able to reproduce. And whoever they reproduce is able to reproduce. And whoever they, repro- they produce, able to reproduce. So you ask yourself this question, how many kids can people have if? Okay? If during this time period they are living long lives? 
Because now remember, a baby who, uh, a person who dies, who's just 100 years old, is considered like a baby. So let's say we're back to the Edenic period, that people are living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. How many children can you have in that time period? Think of your Christmas list then, okay? Add to it, you have no concerns. No concerns about food, housing, or shelter. You have no concerns about disease. You have no concerns about even that intensity, the curse that has been removed, that includes the intense pain in childbearing. How many babies can a lady have if she chooses to have during this time period? It is, well, there's no health risk to the mother, to the children. That's pretty much eradicated a lot of that. Okay, so how many kids could somebody have during this time period? The society is not a scary place to bring a kid up anymore. It's a utopia. How many children, let's rephrase this, how many kids would you have? Okay, if there was none of those issues. The world's population is going to just explode exponentially with a lot of people. By the way, what does that tell you? We have a responsibility during the kingdom. What does that tell you what we should be doing during the kingdom? There's a lot of people who are being born during this time period. We need to be, we're going to be evangelizing. There's still going to be that, that, that activity of telling people about Jesus Christ. Okay, so keep this in mind. Folks who are being birthed will have regular bodies. Some of those regular bodies will expire. I have no clue what happens when their bodies expire. If they live to be 900 years old, what happens at the, for the, the 100 years after that? What about their soul? What about their body? I haven't a clue. Nobody else does either. The folk with sin natures, even though temptations are very minimized, okay, Okay, then there's going to be no, Satan. It's, not, it's better than the Garden of Eden because Satan isn't even around. Okay, during this thousand years. But these people will have sin natures. They don't have as much challenge as you have. They don't have the, 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 all those temptations. So they'll be living in a perfect environment, but they still need to get born again. To have that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, to have a home in heaven forever and ever, they still need to get born again during this time period and ask Christ to be their Savior. And so what's going to happen is they're going to outwardly obey because Jesus Christ will rule with a rod of iron. They have to obey. Now if you stop and say, well, how can there be a righteous kingdom if somebody could possibly do unrighteousness, because the, ge the general tone of the kingdom is everybody is going to do what's right, even if it's from external pressure, everyone will do what's right. However, there will be some exceptions, few in number where the scroll will come and deal with them, few in number where they may die for their own sins. But the bulk of everybody is going to be, they're smart people, they need to obey or else. And that doesn't mean that they have obeyed from the heart. They have obeyed from external pressures. And so that's going to be a lot of what happened. Some will reject Christ. Many will get born again. Okay, so there's going to be the blend of the two. We will help do some evangelism and instruction. We will help encourage them, as we already saw in one of those passages, when they go the wrong way, we will call to them to get right into the right path. So there's going to be ministering done during this time period. There's going to be teaching. There's going to be... Well, we'll see in a few moments. All kinds of activities that could help instruct them. Now, physically, okay, we're there. What are we going to experience physically? 
Is it going climate-wise? What's it going to be politically-wise? Well, we talked about this last week, that Jesus Christ will be there. He'll rule. The political atmosphere will not be like Washington, D.C. Thank God. It's going to be a perfect environment where the leadership will work in harmony, and they will rule and reign. There's going to be a time of universal peace. We talked about this last week. And remember that in this context of this being stated, that all these different texts that talk about the universal peace, which are so many of them, this is on the heels of a time period that some of those people have experienced where it says there was nothing but wars and rumors of wars. There's been nothing but desolations. And all of a sudden they're going to be entering into this kingdom that they're being told the rest of your earthly existence is going to be peaceful. This will be heaven-like for them. It will be heaven-like for us as well. The, um, the sense there's going to be one universal language, I don't know what it is, okay? Pennsylvania Dutch, Spanish, French, I don't have a clue, okay? Whatever it is. It's going to be one universal language, which that'll help keep the unity of the place. Perfect leadership, where there's truth and honesty, so contrary to the leadership that most of these people have just gone through for the last seven years, the last seven years, the world has seen leadership that is operated by one major theme, deceitfulness, deceiving the nations. All of a sudden, it's going to be a righteous, a righteous ruler, Jesus Christ, and everybody who's within his, his hierarchy going to be ruling with righteousness. We also pointed out that there's going to be a time of great prosperity. Understand, this is for a lot of people who enter it, this is... After a time of a lot of tribulation and, and, and famines and diseases, but all of a sudden, the curse is removed. The earth, and I think that 75 days, part of that is that Romans 8 that we talked about last week, that part of that 75 days is when the earth will get its resurrection in the sense of renovation by Jesus Christ. So after it's been devastated in the tribulation period, it's going to be able to be fruitful and multiply again. No more famine. No more hunger, which is eradicated. This doesn't mean so much to you and me because we've never experienced it. We've not experienced it. But for believers who are in certain parts of the world where famine is occurring, this is going to be phenomenal. Okay, for the bulk of people who have lived in history, this is going to be absolutely phenomenal, and especially following a time when the world was nothing but famine as uh, seven years, remember this, the uh, third or fourth seal judgment had nothing, was all about famine. And so all of a sudden there's going to be this great atmospheric changes. What that involves, I don't know. But I know that there's the mention that the light will change and some of the universe and the stars. And God will even protect the people living there with some type of canopy. So that there are, this place is enhancing long life. Okay, and there's going to be that possibility that it's like Eden where all of a sudden there are the planets, the scopes, and the way that the earth is patterned, that it'll be prosperous, fruitful worldwide. We know as well there's great harmony in creation. These are the texts you often see and read about. The texts that talk about the different uh, variety of animals, that they're not threatening children, they're not threatening each other. And uh, even that last passage, Isaiah 35, that is talking about people that are traveling to the temple in Jerusalem who will be going for worship. They don't have to fear any of the animals in the way anymore which was very different from Old Testament culture. And so uh, and keep in mind, according to Revelation chapter 6, the animals were one of the, one of the main causes of one-third of the human race dying in the first part of the first three and a half years. So the animal kingdom will shift back where there's harmony between them and man. 
And so we have this continuation that there's going to be the good health. This makes a lot of sense, okay? That the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The lame shall leap as a deer. Who's the lame? Those who are going in after the tribulation, the Jewish people who have responded, that one-third remnant, the um, tribulation survivors with their physical bodies, if they've had a handicap, if they've had some blindness, if they had some difficulty, their bodies are going to be healed to that point. Not a resurrection body, but a healing like Jesus did to many people during his ministry. These individuals who experience those things, those who are deaf, those who are dumb, they're going to be able to sing during that time period. And so you have that idea of those entering into the kingdom having physical healing in their physical bodies that they, are, that they enter that time period, as well as those living in that thousand-year period, those birthed in that thousand-year period, long life. And without have, think about it. Living in a kingdom where you don't have to have insurances, don't have to go to the doctors, don't have to take medication, don't have to pay for those prescription drugs, Amen. Okay, that's a, that's a blessing. And I don't mean it in a trivial sense. This is a tremendous blessing for individuals in that time period who like, like you know, they'll have physical bodies. You know what it's like waking up on a Sunday morning. You want to get ready for a church, but your body is slow. And it aches and creaks. Getting out of the bed is a chore. You, you know how that's working. Well, these people living in that kingdom who have regular bodies, they won't have what you have. They won't have those same aches and pains. And so it's going to be a phenomenal time period for those, not just us with resurrection bodies, but those individuals living there. Inner peace, joy, talked about in multiple passages, that the individuals living there in this time period. Now keep this in mind. If you went into the, or you were birthed into the kingdom, you are born into this environment, and you are told that it's all because of who? That we experience all this. It's all because Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't you want to worship him? Why wouldn't you want him to be your savior? And so the people who are living in this perfect environment, some of them will reject him, even though they're being told everything that Christ has given them. They're experiencing things that you and I dream about. And when we think about eternity and being in heaven, these are the things that thrill our hearts. They're going to have that experience, and yet they don't get saved. Some of them don't. It's an amazing thought, okay, that, that we need to come back to in a moment. There's going to be very little, very little, very little criminal activity. Okay, there will be some, but very, very, very little. As we pointed out in Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and then even this passage that Jesus Christ will rule with a rod of iron. You either obey my law or, okay, it's very strict. You have to do what he says. Choice is very limited during this time period. We know as well it's going to be a time of labor and productivity. For those of you who say, I'm going to be so bored when we get into the kingdom, when we get into heaven, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't play an instrument. I don't want to float on a cloud and strum all that time. What are we going to do? I'm going to get bored. Okay, there's going to be a lot of productivity and labor. There's going to be activity. We can look at multiple passages that talk about we'll be doing farming. We will be doing building. There we go. We're back to the farmer again. Okay, we'll be doing farming. We'll be building. We'll be enjoying the fruit of our hands. We're going to be expanding, building houses. Revelation talks about we'll be doing um, expansion of our own knowledge. 
We'll talk about that next week. And so there's a lot of activities, a lot of production. There's a lot of, of good things taking place. Now, for you who are born again, who are part of the church age, your special jobs will be designated as one of the major activities is you're going to rule and reign with Christ. That'll depend upon our faithfulness during this time that we are going to, some of us, some of you probably, not me, but some of you who have been more faithful, you're going to be in positions of authority, helping in, in uh, the rule, the control, Remember, that's going to be needed because there's going to be a, a lot of people birthed during this time. There's going to have to be some type of organization keeping things going, keeping people doing what's right, giving instructions. So it's going to be a busy time for us. It's not going to be a time where we're going to just sit and do nothing. There is, and this is an interesting aspect. There's a unified worship that's going to take place where the entire world will be under one religious system. That religious system is Jesus Christ is the head. That religious system is where there's no other false worship. It'll be the first time in history there's none other than the beginning in the Garden of Eden. But not Jesus Christ will be the God. Nobody else is going to pose another deity. Okay, idolatry is gone. False religion is gone. There's one universal religion that's taking place. With that in mind, it talks about every year, everybody who is throughout this world has expanded. They're going to be going up to Jerusalem. They're going to be worshiping Jesus Christ. And it's going to be a regular basis that worship of Christ will take place, that everybody is required to do it. The uh, implications in a lot of these passages is there's going to be sacrifices again. And there's going to be offerings made. And that throws some people, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean we're going to make sacrifices? Are we going to kill the animals? Is, I thought there was no death in the kingdom. Well, now you know different. Okay? That in the kingdom, there is even possibility of human death because some who have disobeyed, that could take place in the kingdom age. As well, some animals would die as the form of sacrifices probably. And so in that question comes up is, wait a minute. What is going to be taking place? Why is there a temple? There is a temple. This is talked about in Ezekiel, given in lengthy description. And it's very similar to the temple in the Old Testament, but it's very different. The temple in the Old Testament had a certain design. This will have that same design. But inside the temple, there are this new temple, there is no Ark of the Covenant. Okay? There is no mercy seat on that Ark. There is no veil. You remember what I'm talking about? The Holy of Holies had the veil. And inside was that thing with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And the Ark of the Covenant was what? I'm trying to see if you're awake. Okay, okay the tablets, what else? Okay, Aaron's rod that budded and a pot of manna. Okay, and on top was the mercy seat. And there was on the outside of the mercy seat two of these angels. Okay, and what, what, what did they put on the mercy seat at times? As part of worship and the drop of... Blood, okay. None of that's going to be there, okay? And remember, the only person who could go into that Holy of Holies and be close to that Ark of the Covenant was the high priest, how often? Once a year, okay. And so all that's gone. And so that place where you meet God, it's wide open. Okay, that's symbolic. We understand what that would mean. The only familiar furniture that is in the Old Testament uh, tabernacle and temple that is going to be in this one is the table, the table of showbread, the table of showbread, remember, is that it had the 12 different loaves and the priest could eat from that at times. It was even when David was on the lamb, he was on the run from King Saul, that David went to the temple and he was famished and the priest gave him bread from that table of showbread. 
It was signifying that idea that we have fellowship with God. We can sit and eat with him. The idea of, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and whosoever opens, I can come in and sup with him. It's that type of concept. That piece of furniture will be there. There is a throne instead of the Ark of the Covenant. There's a throne. Okay, that makes sense, because this is going to be where Christ will rule and reign from. So in that temple area, there's a throne of God. There is also on the external parts of the tabernacle within that that major major provision, there are places, multiple places, according to Ezekiel, where they can do sacrifices, where they can make sacrifices and go through a ritual of sacrifice. The question has to come to your mind is, why will we make sacrifices? In the Old Testament, they made sacrifices as a kofar, a covering for the sin. If I can give the, the silly but simple analogy, the Old Testament sacrifices didn't take away sin, right? Hebrews chapter 10. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It had to be the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, but what did the blood of the bulls and goats and the different animals, what did that do? It kafard. It covered it until the payment was made by Jesus Christ. Very similar, the analogy that we've used at multiple times that, that you and I can best relate to is your credit card isn't your real payment, but it's a payment that basically covers your purchase. You have to make the payment afterwards and you make your monthly payment or whenever you pay your credit card. That is your real payment. But that credit card was a kafar so you could walk away with whatever you got wanted at the store. And so in that sense, the, we're going to come to a point where the sacrifices is different from the Old Testament because we don't need a covering for sin because we aren't, we aren't sinning, okay? There may be some people who will have to make sacrifices because of the disobedience or thoughts or whatever, but why do they have to make a sacrifice? Christ's blood has already covered so the sacrificial system is not as a covering, but it's more as a what? Why do we do communion? The symbol, and it's more of a, what, what do we call communion service? We're looking which direction? Well, we're looking every direction. Uh, but it's looking back at what Christ has done. It's a memorial service. Okay? In the same way, your baptism is a memorial, showing the... Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's an act, it's a ritual, it's an act of memorializing what Christ has done. So when people are making sacrifices in the kingdom age, they're looking back at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a symbolic gesture memorializing what Jesus has done. And so in that sense, we have a temple for several reasons. The temple will show the centrality of, of God's holiness, God's rule. Because every year, we already read, every year everybody at least makes one pilgrimage to the temple, which therefore the world revolves. That's showing us the world revolves around this temple. That God is the centerpiece. He is, the, he is it in this kingdom. Okay? He is the rule. He is the reign. He is the holiness. It also provides a, the temple a d- divine dwelling place, meeting place, if you would, where Jesus Christ can meet with his individuals who worship him. And we know as well it provides a center of his government where he is ruling and reigning. So there's that hub. Just like we always talk about people look to Washington, D.C. We will be looking to Jerusalem where Jesus Christ will rule and reign upon his throne. It is also, this is interesting, in Ezekiel it talks about out of the bottom of the temple, 
Out of its foundation flows a river. And this river, wherever it is touching the riverbanks as it flows out, there is great fruitfulness beyond even the rest of the kingdom. And so we're getting a symbolic sense that out of this temple comes all of life, comes all of victory over the curse, that he is the sustenance of the world. And so it's a demonstration of he is it. He's the life spring. And it's going to provide the memorial for Jesus Christ. So it has its purpose. It has its value. And so during that time period, there's going to be that unified worship that we're all going to be involved in. By the way, there's going to be an an unusual manifestation of God's presence that during this time period, that walking with him, talking with him, like they did in the Garden of Eden with Jesus Christ, it's going to be where it's going to be much more intimate, much more visual, physical, visible than what we experience at this time. And Jesus Christ makes it clear to the people living, promise those people through the Old Testament, I will be with you, I will be with you. With this in mind, not only a temple, not only unified worship, not only a manifestation of his presence, which, by the way, has to, has to absolutely blow our minds when we see Jesus Christ in his glory. Okay. But with that, there's also going to be the fullness of the Holy Spirit, like never before in history. The individuals who are born again, okay, this, we, we enjoy the greatest amount, and, and we in the church age have far better closeness to the Holy Spirit than anybody in any age. And it's going to be magnified within this time period that every individual who is born again, and the Jewish people in particular, they're going to experience this one heart, this one mind, this fullness of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And they won't have what we have. We have the indwelling of the Spirit, but we also have the battle with our old nature. That won't be the case for all of us who are there with the Holy Spirit living within us. And it's just going to be a, a, a far greater time as far as that intimacy and fellowship that's going to be experienced. At the end of the thousand years, this is what we already read this morning. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. Why, with everything going so good, would God say, let him go? Why not just annihilate him? Why do you think God says, let's let Satan loose for a short period of time? Okay, he's going to be dealing, he's testing the free will of people. It goes back to that same idea that God has given everyone free will to choice. Up to this point... Have the people who have lived and been birthed and lived in that, in that thousand years, have they been able to fully exercise a free will? It's been limited. It's been very limited. So at the time, if you were Satan, can you imagine how you're going to come up to people and you're going to go throughout the entire world, it talks about, that he's going to go up and just say, hey, listen, if you follow me, I will finally let you do what you want to do. Okay. Yea, hath God. It's going to be, think back to what he did with Eve and Adam. You know, did God really say this? Did he, does God really care for you? He's holding out on you. You could be as God's. Okay. And so Satan will get his last hurrah, and he'll take it. You know, a thousand years in, in the corner, you know, the bottomless pit, it hasn't changed Satan one bit. Okay, he's going to come out, and he's going to come out swinging and fighting, and so he's going to test the men's heart of those who are birthed during that time period, and he's going to attack. His campaign will be worldwide, as we read, that he'll go to the four corners of the earth, and he is going to try to get people to follow him. Millions will follow him. They will join him, and what they do is they attack Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ is seated on his throne at that temple area that we've already talked about. And they're going to rebel against Christ. They will attempt to attack. Now, again, sin is stupid. He, knows okay. he does. And, and sin is really stupid because the people who have lived during this time period, 
Okay? The people who have lived during this time period, think about it. These individuals who have lived during this time period have everything going for them. They have seen the greatness of Christ, but they're going to try to go against him. Okay? They've heard the stories of how the world tried to fight him when he came from the clouds. And he, what did he do with the armies that shot at him at the end of the tribulation? He spoke and annihilated him. And yet it's like, you people will hear the stories, you will do it. Oh, by the way, in the Old Testament, didn't they hear the stories too? Didn't they hear of the Red Sea? Didn't they hear of all the miracles? And yet they still rebelled. And by the way, don't we know of the same stories? And don't we still struggle? Okay, so these people with the sin nature, some are going to go, and they're going to physically attack the camp. They're going to encircle it. There's going to be that many of them. This is an amazing, all these stats. God will destroy the rebels. Fire will come down from heaven, and it'll wipe them out. It devours them, okay? And so there's going to be that attack. Now, again, as you mentioned, brother, that Satan's aware of this. Satan knows prophecy. He's aware that his time is short when he comes in the middle of the tribulation. So why is Satan going to attack? Because if he can change God's predictions one iota, who wins? Satan does. Okay. So he's going to be cast on the lake of hell forever and ever. He joins Antichrist and the false prophet who have been there for a thousand years, who have been the first ones there. And Satan then will, that'll be his eternal abode. And so he's going to be there. Then what happens is called the great white throne judgment. That's in the rest of what we pick up here in the passage. Before I go any further on the great white throne judgment, which is going to be the final resurrection of all individuals right before eternity of the new heaven and new earth. Okay, let's pause for a second. What the text teaches us, what this account, this prophecy teaches us, Satan is very persistent. He is really, we minimize, we underestimate the enemy. He is persistent. And right now he is still as persistent. He is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may. Okay, we, we minimize his attacks. He is an enemy out for our destruction and the destruction of the cause of Christ. We could stand here right now and say, here's the many ways he attacks, and they aren't just something small. Division between believers, gossip, lust, those things that he brings into, into the church, pride of the preacher, you know, that get caught up with, the, the conflicts where there's wars and rumors, uh, there's wars and arguments amongst you. This is not out of heaven, this is out of hell. All those different ways where he divides even in family units, okay, where there isn't forgiveness. And we give way to Satan when we harbor bitterness, even, he says, you know, when the sun go down, goes down upon our wrath. So he is very persistent. He is an enemy that we ought not to take his attacks lightly. Men of all ages have a sin problem. Of all of human history, this, this time period will highlight it the most that sin is really, 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 really serious. What I mean by that is this, that even though men are living in a perfect society, because the thousand years will be a perfect society, that's not the solution. Even though men are saying outwardly, Jesus is God, he's the king of creation. And remember, Jesus predicted this. He said that at that judgment, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not... Right? Prophesied, done different things, called upon him. And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I... Okay, so the outward activity is not what gets us to heaven. Okay? The problem is, you know, there will be people who can say, okay, I'll obey the commands of Christ. Which, by the way, it's a good thing to obey the commands of Christ. But that doesn't solve our basic sin problem. 
Okay? The, um, the idea of, okay, let's just get together for worship and that'll make me okay with God. No, we got a sin nature. We got a problem that is there that even in the presence of Jesus Christ and other good people, those folk are going to have problems. That shouldn't surprise us because even amongst the 12, wasn't there one who turned against Christ? Okay? And so the answer that people have, they have to have, is a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. To be what we would say and call the terms being born again, being converted, repenting of your sin, you know, um, being saved, asking Jesus in your heart. All those different terms that we throw out that are synonymous in saying an individual needs to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. They will have to do it in that time period. So, with that in mind, when we think about missions... Okay, let's, let's take it for a second. When we think about missions and say, let's do missions work. Let's do something to try to impact people. It is good to feed people. It is good to educate people. It is good to house people. Those are tools that we can use. But what is man's greatest need? The gospel of Jesus Christ, right? To be born again. And so when we think of missions, we've got to think that this is the ultimate goal. This is where we had to head to. Okay, it's not just making a perfect society or a better society. They need to be born again. Can we use those other things? Hospitals and medicines and schools and orphanages. Can they be tools used to help to evangelize? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the idea is we've got to get the gospel out and we've got to get centers of worship established where that gospel can be reproduced time and time and time again. Those local churches. Let's make a third comment. God does not force himself upon any. The free will aspect, okay? That idea that every person of every age needs to get born again. God gives choice. And so he doesn't, he doesn't make you or me, all of a sudden, here I am, I'm made, and he says, you, are, you have no choice in this, you're going to get born again. No, he's never done that, okay? And that's not the idea of predestination, Okay, if you want to talk about election and predestination, we can have a private conversation about it. But just to summarize, there's no passage that says we are predestinated to be born again. It says we're predestinated who are born again. We are predestinated to become conformed to the image of Christ. That is for those who are born again. How do you get born again? We, we have the element of saying yes. Now, I can't do it on myself. It has to be a working of the Holy Spirit that God is working and wooing and drawing me. But you and I have to make the choice of accepting or rejecting. It is not that God forces people to reject him. He is not willing that any should perish. How many people does he want to be born again? How many people did he die for? God so loved the world, not just a select few. Okay? And he gives, them, gives everyone a choice and option. He doesn't force himself upon us. Okay, the other thought, every person will answer for what they have done with God, Jesus, as their personal Savior. So, question comes down to have you. If you're here and you have yet to be born again, you got to get born again. You don't want to enter into any of these time periods that we talk about, the tribulation, what's ahead. You want Christ to be your Savior before those things happen. Then we enter into that most horrific time in history where there's going to be the final judgment of all, of all individuals, the great white throne judgment. Okay? That judgment will take place in heaven, and it is this moment that everyone who has yet to be resurrected, all the lost, will be resurrected, and they will be released from hell for a moment to stand before Christ, and they will be judged, and then their eternity is determined by Jesus. It's already been determined when they've rejected, but he will judge them for their works 
and for something else. Do you know what the, ba- the major part of his judgment is? And whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life, they were cast into the... Yeah, okay. So it's coming back to be born again. So if that's the case, then why is he judging every man's work? Why does it say he judges everyone's works when it's just based upon whether they got saved or not? Why does he bring up their works? Let's talk about that next week, okay? And wrap up this whole study of end times talking about heaven. We'll get into it next week.